WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of City Talk, and this one is very special. When you think of television news in Boston, you think of Channel 5. When you think of the first lady of news, who else but Natalie Jacobson, who has written a marvelous memoir called Every Life's a Story, Natalie Jacobson Reporting. And she is our guest in this hour. And Natalie, I can't tell you how thrilled I am that you're sitting here and I'm talking to you to do this. This is great. Well, Ken, I haven't seen you in a long time, but I'm honored that you thought me worthy of your show. So thank you. All right. Growing up and going to the University of New Hampshire, how did you enjoy that and how did you manage to get there? <laughs> well, I enjoyed it very much. I used to go to bed at night saying, I can't wait to wake up and start a new day. Um, but it, my, um, as you know from reading the book, my dad was so sure that a girl needed to go to college back then. This is the 60s because he saw me in a traditional role being a first generation American of Serbian descent. He thought you'll be grow up to be a wife and a mother. Your mom can teach you everything you need to know. There's no need to go to college. So my godfather convinced him otherwise, thank goodness. And as it turned out, it was my senior year. So I'm lucky there was an opening anywhere. And there were a lot of restrictions as to how far from home I could go and how much money we might have had and, or not had. And as it turned out, I, I applied to UNH, University of New Hampshire. And lucky me, they must have had somebody who rejected their offer. So they had a space for me. And did you, uh, did you want communications? Did you know at that time that broadcasting was what you wanted to do in your life? Absolutely not. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And as women in my age group would certainly remember, um, you know, the opportunities for women were few. Basically, you could get a job as a, a teacher, a secretary, or a nurse. And while there's certainly nothing wrong with any of those professions, in fact, we need them all very much, they just didn't interest me. It wasn't where my head was. So what most of us girls did back then is we got married right out of college, and I did, to Bill Jacobson, and who was a, a student there at UNH as well, and was during Vietnam, so he was sent as an army, uh, into the Army Signal Corps. He was a second lieutenant in ROTC back then, and we were sent to Bangkok, Thailand. So I had two years to learn about another culture, another people, about my own country as seen from afar, it was better than getting a graduate degree. I had a great job that I would never have had in the United States, working as an administrator to a, a contract where we were employing people um, to go to Vietnam in many capacities, whether it be technical or otherwise. So, and then when I came back to the United States, I, for the first time, now I'm in, I don't know, 24 years old, I guess, had an opportunity to say, okay, now what do you want to do with your life? <laughs> so I took whatever job I could get, substitute teaching, waitressing, worked for an outfit called Management Recruiters, and finally figured out that what I really wanted to do was to be in journalism. And the question then was print or broadcast or radio, magazines, um, newspapers, and I chose TV 
really quite naively not realizing that there weren't any girls on TV and not realizing that the three stations, which were all network affiliates, just didn't hire girls. Two notable exceptions at BZ, Shelby Scott and Sarah Ann Shaw had been hired, I think, a year or so before that. Um, so at any rate, I was, I was lucky to finally get a job, and the rest is history, I guess. But your first job was at Channel 56, if I remember correctly, and you found a niche, as it were, and then got let go. Well, the niche was, <laughs> Jim Thistle was the news director there, the famous Jim Thistle, who later was the news director at all the stations, including WCBB when I was there. And um, he read my portfolio. I tried to put together something to prove to a prospective employer that you know I was uh, intelligent, that I could write, that I had some knowledge of, of history and and so forth. And he was the only one who read it. Channels four, five, and seven didn't and didn't even grant me an interview. So I went to work for them, but a year later, because he said to me, I'd like to hire you as a cub reporter. However, I don't have the, it in my budget for a cub reporter, so they have to wait a year. And by golly, he did call a year later and he didn't have that job available, but he had something in community service. And I said, I'll take it. I had no idea what it was. But I wanted to know if what, what goes on in a television station? How, how does it work? And is that really a place for me or not? I figured I was young enough to change my mind if that proved to be not the right thing. So I worked as in ascertaining the needs of the community. Back then, television stations, as well as you know, radio, had to re reapply for their licenses. For TV, it was every three years. And you had to prove a few things to the federal government, the Federal Communications Commission. And that was that you were fair to both candidates and issues, and that you were programming to your, to your viewers. So in a way, I mean, who would have known? But it was the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of news reporting, because I went out and I was excited to represent a TV station and I'm ascertaining the needs. I interviewed everybody from people putting up lines for telephone and electrical supply to the governor and you know, all kinds of people, young, old, of every ethnic variety there was in the city. And I put together a, a pretty good Rolodex of people and reported back to the station and made some suggestions about how we might program to the people who would be watching us. And it was met with uh, approval by my general manager, then Bill White. But he, when you said he, I got fired, in a sense, I, I, I guess you could put it that way. But after my presentation to the board, called me in his office and said, what is it you'd like to do in this business, Natalie? And I said, well, I'd like to eventually work to be the world's greatest reporter, or at least as good as I can be. And he said, well, I'm going to do you the world's greatest favor and let you go. And I thought, oh, my, what did I do? And oh, excuse me, <clears throat> pardon me. He, he said, no one knows this, but in two weeks, our little UHF station will cease to do news. And you're going to have 21 experienced people competing with you for a job. So you got a two-week head start. Get out of here. <laughs> Well, that was interesting because 
remember four, five, and seven weren't about to even talk to me. So as it turned out, you know, sometimes life just offers up some good luck and you got to be just aware and grab it. And that is that WBZ's license was up for renewal. So by golly, um, they hired me because I was probably the most experienced person in town, which I find very funny. And believe it or not, you and I were both at BZ at the beginning, at the same time, I in, 19, right. yep. in 1971, and we both got interviewed by the same guy, a real nice gentleman named Lamont Thompson. He was a lovely man. He was the general manager of the station. Yep, yep. He was a good guy. He was also on the board of Graham Junior College, where I went to school. Whoa. So that, that, <laughs> that certainly didn't hoit, as they say. Right. But uh, we were both there. We didn't know each other, but we were under the same roof, so to speak. And you eventually left there and went to WCVB. And again, I th was it Jim Thistle that, that figured in that as well? No, he was not the news director then. Uh, he didn't come for several years later. I was at BC for um, almost three years, and it was a great, great education. Um, I, I was able to utilize my imagination. Um, the texts at BZ were fantastic in teaching me the tools of the trade, everything from cameras to tape recorders to lights. And we created three new shows while I was there. Um, and it just it was just a great introduction to, to television back then, when, which was in its infancy or maybe adolescence. So I feel very fortunate to have had those years there. And I was convinced because of my work at WBZ that television was right for me. And the thing that really did it for me, if you want, if one could single, single out one event, and that is I did a public service announcement for an outfit called the Home for Little Wanderers, which, which still exists. It's for orphan children. And they told me that during, actually during my, I guess, ascertainment of community needs of the community, that they had some 47 children, as I recall, and had trouble placing them because they had various issues. Could be something like a cleft palate, could be something um, more difficult. So I did, a, I created a little spot um, and by golly, that 30 and 60 second versions of that spot got parents, prospective parents for all of those children and so many more that they actually sent the, the resumes to other orphanages throughout New England. And I just thought, oh my, if one little 30 or 60 second television spot, as we called it, or advertisement, public service announcement, could change the lives of all those children, what power, what opportunity to do good for your fellow man, for your country, for your community, and I thought, Yep, this is where I belong. And how did you get there? What happened? Where? How did you get, well, from BZ to Channel 5? Oh. To WCVB. Well, CVB was, uh, didn't have its license yet. It was a protracted fight with the Herald Traveler Corporation and the government to secure the license. And while I mentioned there were things that stations had to do to prove they were 
worthy of the license, no station had ever lost its license before or since until the Herald Traveler WCBB story, Boston Broadcasters Incorporated. So they conducted interviews, very extensive. I think it was a two or three day interview where you had to write something on the spot, take a position on both sides of an issue such as capital punishment, um, create an, uh, an opportunity in terms of programming. It was quite intense. And I, I couldn't help but think years later, boy, if, if, if we went through that for every person we ever hired, uh, what, what a talented bunch we would have. <laughs> It'd be extraordinary. Uh, but of course, that probably imp was impractical as years went by. But I got the job. And um, for two years, actually, I was the only woman at WCB in a in a in having a job as a reporter or photographer or editor. So that that was the time, you know, it was March 19th, 1972, when we finally did go on the air. Yep, I was going to ask, I was going to name two dates, March 19th, 1972, and also Thanksgiving night of that same year. <laughs> well, that year, uh, the people from the old Channel 5, from WHDH, John Henning, Jack Hines, Chet Curtis, uh, Bob Klinkscale, Bill Harrington, so many, uh, all that you know, uh, came over with almost all of the station to WCBB, including most of the techs um, and photographers. And as it turned out, I was walking through the newsroom. So now I'm a, a fledgling reporter, if you will, but I did have the three years of BZ even under my belt. While I wasn't reporting, I was, I was doing what a reporter does. So <clears throat> I mean, I wasn't called a reporter in the newsroom because they didn't, they didn't like my my work on the air, what I looked like on the air. And so anyway, it's why I never didn't stay with them because they wouldn't let me in the newsroom. So anyway, on Thanksgiving of that year, um, Larry Pickard, who was the news director at the, at the time when the station first went on the air, said, who's anchoring our newscast tomorrow? And one of the producers said, I don't know, you know, both all the, the three anchors are all off, that being Henning, Hines and Curtis. And so I happened to walk by and he said, Natalie, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I'll be working. And of course I would. I was, you know, just the new guy on, on, the, on the staff. So I should be working and the senior staff would have Thanksgiving off. And he said, well, you'll be anchoring all of our newscasts. I almost had a heart attack, said, but I'm not an anchor. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a clue how you're, how, what an anchor is. And he said, well, you'll learn in a hurry because you're the only one that's around that could possibly do it. So suit up, kid. <laughs> <laughs> I was petrified, absolutely petrified. I'm sure it was terrible too, but I somehow managed it. I, I know what it's like to be petrified and go on the air. I've, I've done it. Uh, oh, so I, didn't, I, I, didn't I know I what it's like. I, <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling too. I bet. But but this was a station that did something I've never heard anyone else do. And they decided they wanted to make a movie. Yep. Well, Bob Bennett was our general manager. And he said, why should Hollywood have all the fun? So he decided that we would solicit writers from throughout New England. Anyone could submit a script for a film, for a movie, a, a, you know, a Hollywood movie. Um, 
and we he hired a group of professionals to read all those scripts and make a judgment as to which one we should produce. And then he went out and he hired uh, Hen Henry Fonda, Myrna Loy. I mean, it was, it was pretty hefty talent there. And by golly, uh, it was just wonderful because it gave our technicians who, you know, probably have mundane jobs a lot of the time, an opportunity to show their skills, which in terms of creating and filming a movie out, you know, outside and some in studio, some outside. And it was just quite something. And I just loved that. Bob always saw the TV station as the hub of a community. And, that, you know, he showed it right then. And that is, he thought, okay, we're a Boston station. We're part of the New England six state community. And there's talent down there, out there. They don't all live in, you know, in Burbank. So he just saw it as part of the responsibility of his TV station to give people an opportunity to participate in their, at their skill level, which was in this case, writing a movie. Pretty special. Did you, you didn't get a chance to act on the movie? Oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to learn how to be a reporter. Well, you know, the chance to act, you could you could have played a murderess or a policewoman or, you know, you could have well, been another Angie Dickinson. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had royalty here in Boston uh, a week or so ago. And I can remember in 1976 watching you and a guy named Curtis when uh, the Queen of England was here, and it was great, great coverage. It was extraordinary. There, was an, there we go again, another first. Yep. Um, Bob Bennett and then Jim Thistle, who by then was the news director, decided that we were going to go live and cover Her Majesty and her entourage from the moment they stepped off the Britannia to the moment they went back. And we fielded 11 live cameras via microwave. This was before satellites. And the microwaves were always having hiccups. So it was pretty scary. And we had 11 cameras in 11 positions throughout the city, Fannel Hall, City Hall, et cetera, the, the Har Boston Harbor. Chad and I were assigned to anchor it. It was the first time we had worked together and we had just been married the year before. And so we, the, the technicians chose a, um, the, the engineers chose a site on top of City Hall on the roof there. Now we started at eight in the morning and as everyone knows, the sun comes up in the east. And so we were backlit for the first part of the show. And then we were just had the sun in our face for the rest. Cause we went on, we were sitting in that chair and we're on the air from well, we got there at eight. So I think we went on the air from nine to five or five thirty. So it was the whole day. And you know, I you can tell how hot it was. We never took a break to go to the bathroom. There was no water in us. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just an extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary, extraordinary event because I never studied so hard in my life for American history exams going back to the revolution and remembering the famous speeches and remembering what was going on between the revolutionaries of America and 
and the mother country, really England, and how France played a role, etc. So what we did is we relived what happened 200 years before by using the queen and her trip through all these different spots in Boston. For example, stopping at Fanel Hall gave us an opportunity to remind viewers of who the great orators were who spoke there back in that time. And a lovely thing happened. Uh, in addition to it being an extraordinarily extraordinary broadcast and a phenomenal undertaking, uh, people by the hundreds, if not thousands, who lived in New Hampshire and Vermont and so Maine, wrote to us later, of course, we didn't know it on that day, and said, we loved your broadcast. And while it was great, we felt here was America celebrating the independence from Britain with the Queen of England. The irony was not lost on anyone. And here we were reliving American history 200 years later, and we felt we had to get in our cars, drive to Boston, and be part of it. We had to taste it, feel it, sense it. We just, it was one of those things. It's interesting, isn't it, how humans react that way. You take the the uh, the royalty here that you just mentioned coming to Boston a couple of weeks ago. I heard reporters asking participants, why did you come? And it's hard to explain, and very few people could, uh, because it's just something you kind of feel. So that really put WCVB on the stage as your station that was going to do whatever it takes to bring you anything important in New England live, uh, live. Uh, and it, to be part of that, we were proud. I was proud of all of us. I felt so fortunate to be part of this television station. I knew I was in the right place. And Chet and I had a great time anchoring together. We found out that, you know, he was good at play-by-play -play and I was the color. So <laughs> we blended. We had no idea that we would. And of course, as you know, we went on to anchor um, newscasts later, years later. But it was quite something. Um, and it, it just was, as I said, so proud of us all. It was wonderful. A privilege. You, you also did live programming. And two things that I remember that the station did are House Call and Miller's Court. Yes, those were two broadcasts. Um, House Call, first of all, went on the air the day we went on the air in March. And that was with Timothy Johnson, a physician. And he, it, he conducted a, a house call, <laughs> a friendly, conversational medical show addressing the needs of and questions that people had. And then Miller's Court, Arthur Miller was quite a well-known flamboyant uh, attorney who taught school at Harvard. And someone uh, associated with CVB said, this guy is a hoot. He would be great teaching people about law. What goes on in a courtroom? How does that work? So we created Miller's Court and he did, played the role of himself actually but it was another opportunity through a quasi entertainment newsy type format to educate viewers about their courts of law um, through, throughout their area that probably very few people knew about. So 
that got us started. We did the station, the Boston Broadcast was the owner of, of the station at the time, had promised uh, local programming, the likes of which no one thought they could possibly accomplish. I forget the number now without looking it up, but we far surpassed it and did something like 60, 65 hours a week of original local programming never been done before or since it was and imagine this you know you we were young then and <laughs> kenny and it, if you know you are as we are energetic um imaginative how about try this uh, risk taking people how about this how about that well tv was new and there were there weren't the rules that exist today so pretty much and plus we worked for a guy bob bennett who was a risk taker to the nth degree. You give me a good idea and I'll help you make it work. Just make sure that it meets the needs of our viewers and contributes in some way, whether it's just pure entertainment or more education or news. And so people like me and the room, the building was full of them. Uh, we were ecstatic to work for a place like this. You could go into Bennett's office even if you were the lowest guy on the totem pole, which would have been me, and say, I had a great idea for a show. How about we do X, Y, and Z? But obviously you put some effort into um, detailing that. Uh, Bob was no fool. And, and then also, and this is so different from today and almost in many fields, that is that if you failed, let's say the show wasn't very good, uh, sound off being one of them. It was, someone had the idea, it wasn't me, but somebody had the idea that we should fill the studio with people on whatever the hot issue of the day and let them go at it. And the hot issue of the day was busing. And they chose me to be the host. Well, it was, it was bloody awful. Uh, there were some 85 very angry, opinionated people in that room. White people, black people, people for busing, people against busing. Uh, almost everybody was against busing, including black families. They didn't want to bust their little kids across town. Um, but then came the court decision and and it, and it came to be. But as relates to a show not working, I went to Bennett's office the next day and he said, what do you think? And I said, I think it was horrible. You know, I mean, all these people screaming, nobody heard anybody talk because it was a cacophony of angry sound. People were flying at me as though I were some ringleader in a lion pit. And I was glad to get out of there. And he said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I think that the concept has, has value. That is allowing people, the general community, not experts, you know, um, but just people who are smart and committed to their children and their education system and their community to have an, in this case, have an opportunity to voice their opinions and argue their points and listen to people whose opinions are different from theirs. But we gotta have a different format if we're gonna continue this because th that didn't work. So being Bennett, he, he talked to the producers obviously uh, also and whoever else he'd spoke with. And he made the decision that we were going to try again and change the format to accomplish what we needed to do. So that's the kind of place I worked for and the kind of man I worked for and the kind of people I worked for that were, you know, could adjust and recreate. Um, and 
we ended up doing some amazing, amazing programming nobody had ever done before. And I don't care whether it's 2022 or 1974, you know, there's always something new you can do. You can always improve on things. You can always bring information to viewers or listeners in a better way, in a more informative way. And never in my lifetime have I ever thought there was a greater need for that kind of discourse than today. It's just unbelievable. It's unfathomable to me um, that people do not want to hear from someone that doesn't have their opinion. Really? I mean, you can take Congress, you can take members of your own family, the media. No, you just want to hear from people who reinforce your point of view. College kids, you know, 10 kids can petition the administration and say, we don't, we don't want Ken Mayer speaking because he doesn't have the same point of view we have on whatever subject is at hand. Well, how, how do you learn <laughs> if you don't listen to other people? You don't have to agree with them, but it's important to understand why they believe the way they believe and why they advocate for what they advocate. Otherwise, I don't know how a how a civilized society or a democracy can continue. We're in a tough place in this country. We need a correction big time. I'll tell you one thing that I miss from being in the business, and that's local TV talk shows. You had the Good Day Show. BZ had people are talking with Sonia Hamlin to begin with when I was first there. And, sure. and Paul Benziquin over on Channel 7. And it was great because you never knew who you might. I mean, I walked into the lobby one day and really literally ran into Jane Fonda. You yeah. know? <laughs> and that yeah. kind of thing. But I missed that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, The, the Good Day Show was positively extraordinary. Uh, it was just wonderful. 90 minutes of live television Monday through Friday. And, you know, my gosh, uh, it was just a group for Yes, you could have a Jane Fonda walk in or uh, this day and age, a Celine Dion or, yep. or the president of the United States, you know. Uh, so <laughs> we, had, we had the president on, uh, the Carters uh, at the time. Yep, on. we did so, too, as a matter of fact. We had them twice. Yeah, so it, yeah, I miss that. You know, CVB does have their political show Sunday mornings um, where they interview local officials, which is very good. And there's a thing called City Line uh, about local issues. So there are there is some, but none of them, not like the uh, the days past, the magnitude of that. That show was uh, Good Morning. Actually, it was, was changed to Good Day. It was Good Morning, and ABC wanted the title. And Jim Coppersmith, who was the GM at the time, said, okay, you can have it. And then we had to change our show to Good Day. But it was still the same broadcast. And Janet Langhart and John Willis were a perfect match. They just uh, they they just made it sing. Is anybody still around? Like either one of them or Eileen Pros? Eileen um, is around. Yep, I hear from her every now and then. In fact, uh, a couple of wonderful people from CVB put together a get together once a year of people who have left Channel Five. So, and I also saw Janet uh, the year before COVID, I guess, or somewhere in there, and who lives up in Maine with her husband. And uh, John Willis sadly has passed, I'm told. Uh, he was a wonderful man. And you know, we were all friends. Uh, yeah. 
uh, John Willis and Janet and, and John's wife, and we were all friends. We did things together. We we partied together. We went to when parties back in those days. It was mostly going to somebody's house for dinner. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, but it was yeah, it was a different time. There was a camaraderie that just made you feel good to be alive and good to be part of this whole television media in Boston. You you had a great staff of reporters like like Ron Gullivan, Kirby Perkins, um, David Ropeek. Uh, um, oh, Jack, Jack, yeah, Jack was another one. Um, Kelly Tudhill, who, yep. whom she had cancer and she let them, I remember she let them film her going through the various treatments. I'll never forget that. Yeah, she was extraordinary. And, she wanted to see as another example of our wonderful people. Um, she wanted to be helpful to other women who had cancer. And she and she was someone that they knew they could relate to. They saw her on television every day. They knew she was a mom um, and young and a brave, brave lady. And she's, she's an extraordinary woman. I'm proud she's my friend. Um, there's a great story in there about your letting Chet know that you were going to be a mother and he was going to be a father. Yeah. <laughs> um, We've been trying to have a baby for several years and it just wasn't happening. So finally I was, I found out I was pregnant, went to the doctor. I had some symptoms and I really wasn't counting on him telling me the good news, but he did. And I was scheduled to go up to deliver a speech for the Jimmy fund on the North shore somewhere. And I thought, Oh, I might have just enough time to run across the street, to this store and buy a pair of baby boots, then drove back to, need him to the guard shack and ask the guard to call Chet out and hand him this box and no note. And I said, don't say I gave you this box. Just tell him someone delivered it. So I was hiding behind a tree <laughs> and, uh, and Chet came out and he opened the box and I'm staring at his face from behind the tree thinking if he doesn't burst into a big smile, I'm going to run away. <laughs> and <laughs> fortunately he burst into a big smile and you know we had a big hug and kiss and I said now you can't tell anybody because I'm only six weeks pregnant and you know if you tell anybody that's going to be the world's longest pregnancy <laughs> he couldn't tell people fast enough <laughs> and it was the world's longest pregnancy and I so I so felt bad for my my wonderful colleagues, because from that day on, they were faced with viewers saying, did you have the baby yet? No, it's only the second month. <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, we get an offer from somebody else. I had an offer once to go to WXYZ in Detroit as executive producer, and I turned it down. You had one from CBS and Dick Salon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it was um, what mid seventies, I guess. And um, there was a big push to hire women. I, I mean, he could have looked for somebody that was way more skilled and experienced than I. Um, but he, for whatever reason, he chose to interview me and offered me a job as a CBS correspondent with an opportunity to work for 60 Minutes, which was only a few years old at that point. Don Hewitt was the producer and he was 
he was making TV in a way nobody did before either. The investigative report was extraordinary and backed by extremely talented reporters and producers. So uh, I ended up turning it down. Um, it's a long story, but I'll just let it go with that for now. And, uh, and you know, you can't look back and, and say, I wish I did that because that's a waste of your time and life. You can't do things again. And I had two, two thoughts on it now, so many years later. One is I had a great life as a reporter and anchor at CBB. I, I loved my work, as you must be able to know from this conversation. On the other hand, if I had gone to CBS, I'd still be working because they're probably the only broadcast uh, that doesn't fire its people because they're no longer young and gorgeous and sexy or whatever. <laughs> and, and they keep their, they value their experienced correspondents who obviously get older. And in fact, some die still working there, as you have seen. So yes. in, that, in that sense, I'd, I'd love to have taken that because I would still love to be working, especially in a, that kind of capacity where you're feeling doing quality news reporting and backed by the kind of power and money that CBS has. So, uh, you know, that, you know, but that's life, right? Um, yep. Yep. I feel the same way. I, I could have taken that job. Uh, I'm glad that I didn't because I had more years at BZ and met people that I never thought I would ever meet in my life. Uh -huh. um, besides Jane Fonda. <laughs> I mean, I had dinner with the Lone Ranger. I mean, you can't get much better than that. Oh, wow. Uh, was Trigger with him? Pardon? <laughs> was Trigger with him? Uh, no, it was Silver, as a matter of fact. Silver? It What's Trigger? Who's Trigger? Trigger was Roy Rogers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Trigger was Roy Rogers. That's and right. and it, the funny thing was with the Lone Ranger, he took a ride. It was at one of the, it was either at Foxborough or Suffolk Downs. Really? And he, and, and he rode around the racetrack in a car instead of a horse oh my. don't ask me why and he even gave me a silver bullet when he got when we got finished what a hoot what year was that oh gosh that was in the um, um early 80s uh -huh. early 80s and i i i kept telling him I, I can't believe that i i'm having dinner with the lone ranger i mean my god now i'm going to mention two names john silver and Henry Kissinger. Okay. You you were doing a candidates series at the time, I believe, and interviewing candidates in their homes. And one of the early ones was John Silver. Tell us the story. That was the first one. So the background on that is that I thought we in the media, all forms of it, did a pretty good job in Boston of informing voters about the candidates. And what I, but I had a sense that most voters, well, many, if not most, maybe, mo maybe most, really didn't um, vote for someone based on a particular uh, uh, issue. And but certainly there were activists who would vote yes or no on an issue, but I thought they were few. Also, there were some voters who would back then who would only vote their party. Now it seems that that's different now, but because uh, never mind. But I thought <laughs> I transgress. I, I, the, um, 
I thought that most people would say, oh, you know that guy, Kenny Mayer, he's, you know, he's running for governor. I kind of like him. I think I'll vote for him. Well, what do you like about him? I don't know. I just like him. Or, you know, there's that Natalie Jacobson. She's running for mayor. Yeah, I'm not going to vote for her. Why not? I don't know. I just don't like her. Well, what don't you like? I really don't know. So I went to my employers and I said, you know, if I'm right, then do we have a responsibility as journalists to tell people what these people are like, meaning their character? How do they raise their kids? How do they make decisions? How do they decide who they will hire? What lines won't they cross? What do they laugh at? What keeps them up at night? Who are they? What makes them tick? Now, my employers decided that was a great idea and they actually agreed with my premise. And so we decided we would interview the obviously not the candidates at the pre-primary level, but once you had two candidates for governor, for Senate, for Congress and for mayor, and that I would interview them. Um, and then we had to think, well, what's, I want them to be really comfortable, you know, come armchair slippers, comfortable. So we decided at home where they live at home would be where they would be most comfortable. We would invite their families to come, whoever they wanted to be there, their children and so forth. And, and then I would try to get a sense of who they are as people. I never, you know, you work way harder at that than trying to decide if he's for and against gun control or for and against, you know, you know, any particular issue. So I thought long and hard about it, worked very hard on it, and it, it came to be, I could talk for an hour about it, but let me just shorten this story by saying John Silver and Bill Weld were the first at-home interviews I did, and who knew that it was going to be so explosive? And largely because uh, John Silver was one of a kind, no holds barred, um, he take no prisoners kind of guy. He was very intelligent. He brought BU up from, you know, a school in the shadows of Harvard and VC to a school of prominence. And nobody, not too many, let me correct that. He had a lot of enemies. People didn't necessarily like him, but he, just wasn't a warm and fuzzy guy, but he was determined, he was smart, and he was one of those people who truly believed that his opinion was the right opinion, and he didn't have a whole lot of, uh, <laughs> like many people today, didn't have a whole lot of respect for a point of view that was not his. So remember, he had the silver shockers, the, the, the Herald called them that, silver shockers. He would say things like, when you're ripe, it's time to go, meaning you shouldn't <laughs> go into waste money by keeping your life going another year or two only to die. Um, so he, at, at any rate, uh, he kind of wrote his own obituary on that campaign, in my opinion. That there was a lot of soul searching on my part um, to, did I do something wrong? I looked at those videotapes over and over. I, I looked at them with my superiors at Channel 5 and some of my colleagues. And of course, everybody has an opinion, something like that. But um, it, no, I didn't find that we had done anything wrong and that we in any way had violated the truth or made purposely made him look bad. Um, he did it himself. And I think what did him in, um, 
there are some people who think it was because he attacked me, but I really think it's because he showed the angry side of him. And I think angry men scare people. So, but, but he also told you he got a phone call during your interview. Yes, and, and, and he did. His daughter came in and said, we were in the living room and he was playing on the piano with his two-year-old grandson. And we were just filming some, you know, happy family time to go with our piece. And uh, I said, let me turn your microphone off so you can have some privacy on your phone call. He said, no, no, no. He said, why don't you come with me? Um, you might find this interesting. Well, no one has said who was on the phone. So my antenna goes up. And I said to my photographer, just keep shooting. I have no idea what, what's going to happen here. And he, you, I heard his side of the conversation, of course, and saying, yep, okay, right, thank you, right. Look forward to seeing you Thursday, yep. So he gets off the phone, and I'm basically staring at the guy, <laughs> yeah, hoping he's going to offer something since he invited us to listen. And he said, don't you want to know who was on the phone? And I said, sure, who's on the phone? And he said, Henry Kissinger. And I said, really? He said, yep, he's coming here on Thursday to endorse my candidacy. I burst into laughter and said, what's the joke? And he, said, he looked at me sternly and said, what do you mean, what's the joke? And I said, well, Kissinger's not coming to endorse you. He hates you and you hate him. Remember you guys were on the president's commission to Latin America and the two of you were basically sparring every day? And, uh, and and it made the made national news, and he said, "Well, he's coming Thursday." And I thought, "Okay, well, I'll, today's Sunday. I'll call Kissinger tomorrow. You know, if I can find him." <laughs> so <laughs> I did. Anyway, I write about it in the book. I mean, I have this conversation. I do call Kissinger's office, and Silver did make that up. It, he wasn't on the phone, so it was quite something. <laughs> Why do you think he did that, though? He he obviously no knew. You were going to check out a story like that. Or maybe he thought it was, wouldn't. I have no idea. Did he really think I'd report that without checking it? Then he didn't have a very high opinion of me. <laughs> now, you did something called, I, I, is it turning point? No. Or breaking, breaking point? Something point that you did on, on your program or on the newscast. You mentioned it in the oh, book. Check, and I, checkpoint. 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 Would that oh. work? Would that work today? Tell us about that, and uh -oh. would it work in today's news? I think it would. I thought it was great. Um, it was the it was the uh, idea of one of our producers. It was brilliant. Um, it what that I guess to set this up. What checkpoint was was an opportunity to involve several reporters to do aspects of the lead story. So let's say. Uh, I don't know, pick something. Um, Donald Trump? Uh, well, let's say something local. Let's say the, you know, the, <laughs> the princess and, and coming to Boston the other day. Uh, <clears throat> so let's, so that's the main story. That's the peg, as we would call it, right? So a, a reporter would be assigned to cover the lead story that they were here and, you know, basically what they did and so forth. But then let's say there were elements of that story that you can't fit into a minute and a half or two minutes at the head of the six o'clock news. Plus we didn't have enough people to be, or time to cover all of that. So Dick Amaral, whose idea this was said, all right, 
will assign, let's say Kirby Perkins covers the them coming. He does, he's got the lead for tonight. Natalie, Chad, and I don't know, Harrington. You three now go and each of you gets one minute to tell just this aspect of the story. Now understand that the three of us had already covered another story that we had to write and edit for the newscast that day. So this was in addition to whatever we were doing on that day, but it was a way of getting it done because if you only had to chase one particular fact, in this case, let's say, um, uh, you know, maybe the relation, something about, and I can't come up with anything right now, but say, say there was an element about their visit that, that was important to know. And I only had to make a few phone calls and shoot a little bit of film to tell that part of the story. So what Checkpoint did at the end of the broadcast, it rounded out, added to the information of the lead story in a way that was doable logistically, given our limited number of people and time. They should use that in the, the way the news format is now. I think that would be a great thing to have. I mean, you have well, news that starts at four in the afternoon. I know. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, news is the least expensive thing to produce these days. So you have more of that than things that cost a lot more money. Why did, why did BBI sell to Hearst? Money. Why did they get out of it? <laughs> money. Um, there were... It was actually, the, I was told, it was the first leveraged buyout, um, which now there are many, but um, it's kind of interesting. And it, Metro, uh, Metro Media came to CVB and offered to buy it for, I'm sure, this could be wrong, so I hate to say the money, but it seemed to, Bill Porvo is still around, he would know. You could check with him. It seemed to me it was somewhere around $270 million. And it's, as I said, it's probably way off. But anyway, sounds, it was, it sounds like ball player salaries today. Exactly. But it was a lot of money then. And the owners of BBI were a group of men who all of whom were extremely um, successful in their various careers, everything from medicine to law to finance to education, etc. And, you know, they accomplished their mission. They, their mission was to create the greatest local TV station in the history of America. They felt they had done it and that it would continue, that it was on, in, in good stead. And they wanted their money. They wanted to make money on it. And they did. Bill Fine, who was the uh, a general manager, um, took away your, your candidate's program. Uh, they didn't want it anymore. If that hadn't happened, you said then that you sensed the beginning of the end. If that hadn't happened, would you have stayed there longer or did you just decide it was time to leave? I think there were a lot of factors um, that suggested it was time to leave. Way too many to, um, to talk about here. It wasn't just that. Uh, there were many factors. It was pretty clear that news was going in a different direction. This is now 35 years later. Things change. Um, and that's, you know, could be the subject of a, a great article or a great program or a great book. But it's, it's complicated and there are a lot, of, a lot of elements to it. I also had an idea in mind for something that I wanted to pursue 
I saw that people uh, of my generation, so I was what, late 50s, 60 then, um, were, were, were retiring or being laid off or their companies were being purchased and so they lost their jobs. Or if they owned a company, they were selling their company and moving into other things. So I thought I would create this online site called My Next Big Thing. And I actually uh, paid to keep that title, although I saw something online the other day that somehow someone else thought they owned it and was selling it. But mynextbigthing.com, where I worked for two years, I worked really hard and tried to cover every angle, read everything, talked to hundreds of people to create an online site where people could, who had been successful in whatever they did, but were ready to move on for whatever reason and weren't ready to retire yet. They didn't want to work 80 hours a week anymore, but they didn't want to just play golf. And they were energetic as they ever had been and imaginative and as successful people generally, they go from one thing to another and achieve success at it because often of their diligence um, and as well as their intelligence and their ability to get things done. I never did get that off the road, uh, off the ground. I. I regret it to this day. And I, I think I had a good idea and I think the elements would have worked. Now, this is before any of the social media that you know. So it was before LinkedIn, before Facebook, before Instagram, before anything you know of social media today. And in fact, one company that I approached said, gee, we just sent X number of million dollars to this guy in California. I said, well, what's he doing? And they said, this company said, uh, private equity group, they said he's creating something called LinkedIn, but it's for people who are trying to get into their first careers. And you're talking about the second career. And I said, well, maybe there's a marriage here. Maybe there's an addendum to that. They said, we think there is, but what we want to do, we just sent the check yesterday. Let's see how LinkedIn does. And if that works, then maybe we, we take your idea and we add it to that site. Well, that didn't happen either. So I mean, the world is full of good ideas that just, uh, you know, never managed to swim across the pond, but that's, that's life. <laughs> I always ask people this who read their own book. You read your book. I read your book. As I said, you and I had breakfast on a Saturday morning. Do you ever, did you ever have, or do you have second thoughts after reading it out loud? Second thoughts about doing the narration? Anything. Anything. Or no, not the narration. About the book. Oh. About the book. The narration was perfect. Perkins okay. could use you in a minute. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, it seemed to me the whole the whole book was a conversation, you know, by me. So who else could would should do the narration? Um, no, I didn't have so much second thoughts, but I had um uh, since then. I've had thoughts of things that I somehow got left out during the editing process, which ticks me off. Mm. And, and it's, I don't know how that happened. And certain stories or certain information. And there are also then things come up now that I, I attend a, a book festival or I meet with people who read the book and have talked to me and tell me about their lives. And I think, oh, yeah, I remember when we did that. I wish I should have put that in the book. But uh, so maybe there's a sequel, maybe not. I don't know if I could go through it again because I had to self-publish, even though it says Randall Publishing, basically they just got me a printer. They don't help me sell the book or 
um, promote the book the way an agent and a publisher work, as we all kind of knew it, them to work. But no agent, even the ones that knew me from Boston, would take me on. You know, as I said, life changes. And the little guys, like Little Brown and others, they got eaten up by the big boys in New York. And agents don't want to take it, are told by publishers and, the, and each other that they don't want to take a chance on a local person like Natalie um, doing a memoir. And I said, it's not a memoir. It's really a reporter's journal. Don't think of it as a memoir. You're right. Who the heck cares about Natalie except someone that might have watched me? I agree. I wouldn't take a chance either. But that's not what it is. It's a reporter's journal. It's a, it's, it's, it's a kind of an, a familiar, familial inside conversation about 20, 35 years of history in New England. Look at it that way. It's not. I'm not a historian, but I'm a reporter, and I tell stories and. So I couldn't convince anybody. And so I've sold a number of books and I don't know how many you need to sell <laughs> to convince an agent who turned me down before to say, you know, she sold enough books. Maybe we should take her on. And I meet people in Florida, for example, where I'm, I am for a couple of months. And, you know, they say, well, we can't find your book, you know? So the only place they can find it is Amazon. And the bookstores don't carry it here because they didn't have a salesman sell it to them. Well, I mean, you know, we, we, we've still left things out. There's a great story about Rosie Louise, which we don't have time for, yeah. and uh, many other ones. But listen, you you are absolutely tremendous. It was a great book. I laughed through parts of it. I cried through parts of it. That's sweet. That's so nice. Well, you, I'm glad you, you liked it. You made my day. You make me feel good. Thank you. <laughs> well, you deserve it. It's It's a wonderful book. And again, it's uh, Every Life Has a Story, Natalie Jacobson reporting. I recommend it. And uh, I wish you Godspeed in whatever you decide to do next. And if you ever write another book and want somebody to endorse it, give me a call because I'll do it in a heartbeat. Okay, Kenny, you're the best. Well, I can <laughs> and that the longevity of your remarkable career. So thank you very much. I was, I was in the right place at the right time. If I tried to get in it now, I'd never make it. Yeah, but that's another, <laughs> okay. that's, that's another well. story. But, okay. but thank you again for your time. You're an interviewer's dream. And uh, I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you. I enjoyed talking with you, Kenny. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's K-J-M-E-Y-E-R-7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.